0: And welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is March 1st, 2024, and I am truly delighted to be here with Noor Judah, one of FMEP's 2024 Palestinian Non Resident Fellows. This is our first official podcast together with you as fellow Noor, and I am so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your formal biography to give our listeners a glimpse into the breadth and the depth of your work. Noor Judah is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at UCLA and a former President's and Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Geography at UC Berkeley. Dr. Judah completed her PhD in Geography at UCLA in 2022 and wrote her dissertation, Mapping Decolonized Futures, Indigenous Visions for Hawaii in Palestine, on the efforts by Palestinian and native Hawaiian communities to imagine and work toward liberated futures while centering indigenous duration as a non-linear temporality. She also has an MA in Arab Studies from Georgetown University and wrote her MA thesis on the role and perception of exile politics within the Palestinian liberation struggle in particular among politically active Palestinian youth living in the United States and occupied Palestine. And for anyone wondering or worried, we're going to come back to the language of the dissertation to unpack that in (laughs) non-academic language. But first, before we get there, Noor, I want to ask you my first question for you, so not in the language of your professional biography. Will you please tell us about yourself? Where are you from? What do you want listeners to know about you as a scholar? As a researcher, as a person, thank you.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you. I so I um. I came to the states uh, to the U.S. when I was five. I was uh, born in uh, Saudi Arabia. My parents were working there at the time. Uh, both of my parents are Palestinian. Um, we are from a uh, a village in uh, a depopulated village in Palestine called Isdoud, uh About twenty five kilometers north of of Gaza. Um, The entire village um, minus a a couple of families fled to what is now the Gaza Strip. Um, And then our families have have been there and and throughout the region um, uh, since. My father uh, was a history professor and he was teaching in in Saudi Arabia um, in the late 70s and throughout the 80s when I was born. And um, during the first Gulf War, uh, as a politically active Palestinian, he was uh, considered persona non grata, and was one of the you know hundreds of uh, thousands of Palestinians who were um, uh, who had their work contracts canceled and who were deported at some capacity um, from from the Gulf. Of course, most of those were those Palestinians were in Kuwait, but you did have. Um, you know, uh, several uh, in other countries, uh, including Saudi Arabia. And so uh, we came to the U.S. when I was five and uh, I grew up in Tennessee, actually. Um, so in a lot of respects, I consider myself a Palestinian southerner, uh, which is nice because I'm a southerner in both places. I'm a southerner in Palestine and I'm a southerner um, in the U.S. Um, and uh, I'm really grateful in a lot of ways for having grown up in that region in the U.S. Um, I think I. Uh, A lot of my Palestinian-American friends and and colleagues um, uh, grew up on the East Coast or West Coast. Um, And in a lot of ways, I'm glad that I didn't. Um, I think when I was younger, I had a a bit of envy uh, to not have grown up um, amidst a larger Palestinian-American community. And as I got older, I realized that I think it gave me a better perspective on the U.S. to have grown up in the South, um, uh, to understand the U.S. in particular ways um, that I think my East and West Coast uh, cohorts perhaps did not. Um, And um, I found that it also allowed me in a lot of ways uh to be more confident in who I was as a Palestinian I was growing up in a house uh where my father was a Nakba survivor my mom born during the Nakba um for for most of my generation those individuals in their lives are their grandparents for me it was my parents um as the youngest of five kids I had a you know bit of a different kind of age dynamic happening in in my immediate family and um I never had this sort of question or crisis of, of uh, proving, feeling the need to prove my Palestinianness, or 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 being conflicted about how American or how Palestinian I was at any given moment. I was always very comfortable and aware of the fact that the only reason we were in the U.S. was because we couldn't be home. Uh, and I, I knew that that wasn't just my parents' story, but that that was my story as well. Um so that's, that's where I grew up in the US. Um, and then after uh, undergrad in, in Tennessee as well, I ended up on the East Coast for many years um, and then eventually uh, came to, uh, out here to California and have now been spoiled by so much sunshine that I'm not sure I'll ever be able to withstand winter again.
0: Thank you for all of that. Um, I'm glad you've got the sunny days. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, I'm from Atlanta and at some point yeah, there you we'll, go. we'll have a conversation about translating the South to people who are not from the South. What it means yeah. to be able to to talk to people across across lines, to not expect that we're yeah, surrounded I mean, I, by people you know, who agree
1: uh, with us. After I left DC after I left uh, excuse me, Tennessee, the first place I moved was DC. And I was working as a as a canvas director. For progressive uh, or nonprofit organizations, and um, every time I would tell somebody that I was from Tennessee, you know, they always had this kind of look on their face of, "Oh my God, how was that? What was that like?" You know, and I, meanwhile, I was I was running uh, a canvas, you know, a canvas fundraising office in D.C., and I was thinking about where I could send my black, like, which zip codes I could send my black canvassers to without them getting the cops called on them. And and I just I was so I was baffled by the uh, sort of disconnect be- between where they were living and I was like are you serious I I can't send half of my canvassers to to certain zip codes in 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 D.C. because I don't want them to have to deal with the cops uh, or put them at risk um, and and you I was like you know for better or worse I didn't think twice about where I sent canvassers in Tennessee. Um, I was like, you know, there are a lot of other things going on. It's not a, it's not a, um, a pass at anything that happens in, in the South. But if you think you're exempt to anything going on, you got to be crazy. And, and I think something that we've seen, fortunately, no, certainly not fortunately, in the sense that there's been any violence, but fortunately, something that we've seen as a, as a result of, the, um, attention towards so much police brutality in the U.S. in, in the last, you know, decade. Um, has been so many people um, realizing that this is not uh, subject to geographic location, right? George Floyd in, in Minnesota, Ferguson, St. Louis, and so on. Um, and I think that that's done a lot of, for the conversation. Um, and and that you know those kind of things as a geographer, those those types of things are also very important um, on a global scale. You know, we we tend to really pigeonhole certain problems to certain spatial localities and and of course none of that is uh, realistic because we we're all living in these global systems and and subject to these global systems that are you know significantly um more encompassing of our of our lives and the problems within them than than any than any one region or state thank you for that that and
0: that is a the 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 perfect uh, entry into my next question, which I wanted to ask specifically about your research. So you went from political canvassing and whatever else you did, <laughs> many other things to becoming a geographer. So will you talk to us about a little bit about your work and about what questions you're trying to answer in your work? And I, I should preface that by saying, um, I read this sentence about your dissertation in the <laughs> beginning, so you you wrote about the efforts by Palestinian and native Hawaiian communities to imagine and work toward liberated futures while centering indigenous (laughs) duration as a non-linear temporality. So talk to us about your research, but what is indigenous
1: duration as a non-linear temporality? Sure. Um, Okay, so a couple of things. Um, I think, you know, I I came to geography as a discipline, um, and now I'm not even housed necessarily in a geography department, though that's certainly my work, but um, largely because uh, I was always someone that thought spatially. And I think that this is not um, unique uh, amongst Palestinians. Um, We grow up very much thinking about um, space, the spaces that we can uh, access, the ones that we can't. Uh, the ones that we're from um, and can't get back to. Um, And so this has always been a very sort of central component in my life and the discourse uh, around um, place and space, right? And so I think it was natural in some ways for me to end up in geography. And in other ways, it was um, a discipline that was perfect for me because it, it allowed me to take all of the critical theory I wanted and merge it with every other social science, right? So... Um, I, tell, I jokingly tell my students that geography is just a, a smattering of all of the other social sciences they take, and then you can add space to it, uh, and that's how you get the discipline. Um, so we don't have a formal canon, and so it's really nice in that respect. Um, I think for me, it gives a lot of flexibility. Um, the research specifically from the dissertation and, and what, will, what will sort of morph into a book project now um, really has to do with the idea that we are surrounded by, um, by a sense of fatalism, right? Around uh, the future of settler states and the future of indigenous peoples. Um, that those futures are a fate accompli. Um, it is what it is. And it was this awful thing that happened in the past, um, but, you know, land back is a myth. Decolonization is a myth. Um, all of these things in a, in, a, in a sort of settler society are just us, you know, bleeding hearts talking uh, for the sake of talking, but that there's no actionable um, premise behind the, the imagination, right, that, that's occurring. And so I, I really wanted to um, push back at that, but also look at how the communities themselves are pushing uh, back sort of at that um, premise and discourse, because the reality is that sort of this idea of indigenous duration, right? The, the, the ongoing presence of indigenous communities that despite attempts at elimination, despite genocide, um, indigenous communities still exist. The, the, the ultimate reality of settler colonialism is that it fails constantly. Um, and the presence and survival of indigenous communities is its biggest failure right? Because it is unable to hide um, in, in our presence and in our existence. Um, it's unable to hide that there was a before. Um, and so when we when we look at that um, and when we approach research with an ethic that does not treat um, Indigenous survival um, as uh, Indigenous survival despite Something, but we look at indigenous life and indigenous creation and indigenous imagination., um, we're also challenging uh, the the settler attitude and settler experience of time, or settler temporality, um, that the future is a given uh, of a particular thing. And uh, when we look at the question of linearity, when we say nonlinear temporalities, what we're really talking about is how we experience time, right? The idea, that most of us, but particularly indigenous communities, right, um, experience time in a linear format. This thing happened, and then this thing happened, and this thing happened, and we go from, you know, point A to B to C, is a myth. We experience time uh, simultaneously all at once, uh, past, present, and future. Um, If we look at what's happening today in Gaza or what was going on with the Unity Intifada in 2021, we feel all of those moments at once in the same breath that I mourn for Gaza. I mourn for, uh, I've mourned for my, my, my aunts and uncles in the sixties. Uh, I mourn for, um, I mourn for, you know, 2014. Um, but I'm also thinking about the future. I'm thinking about all of those kids that are going to survive and what tomorrow looks like for them. So it's really also taking this question of, Uh, our experience of time and and how that impacts our lives and how that impacts the imaginations and the projects that we work on. So I look at mapping projects specifically, I look at um, what it looks like to archive Indigenous uh, spatial knowledge to take colonial records and make their purpose something else. Um, So projects like Palestine Open Maps and what it means to digitize the British uh, survey maps and to conduct mapathons um, and go around the world and have communities vectorize and bring to life these maps and label them. Um, And then projects, of course, like Palestine Land Society's uh, Village Reconstruction Competition where Palestinians are quite literally um, mapping onto the future and and designing how villages can be reconstructed, destroyed villages. Um, And then in Hawaii, looking at um, projects of land restoration. So uh, actual sort of uh, land back projects, but also ones that involve um, teaching youth, uh, traditional um, uh, farming practices, um, uh, the revival of Hawaiian language efforts, um, looking at also uh, similarly uh, archiving uh, spatial knowledge, uh, Hawaiian spatial knowledge. So looking at things like the Kapuka database or the Papa Kilo database, uh, that comes out of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. So getting a sense of how these projects uh, for these communities are examples of ways to um, not only imagine futures, but for us to understand mapping as a generative practice um, and not just as a, um, as a as a practice of trying to record something that already exists, right? Th- thinking outside of the idea of uh, maps as just a reflection of data Um, but understanding that maps are dynamic and emergent and that every time that I use a map or that you use a map, that that process itself is a mapping um, and that it looks different from me to you. Um, And so we're constantly sort of creating these maps and these spaces that we live in. Thank you.
0: I hear that the... um... This the seizure of the agency and the power in mapping and making it a generative and creative process, and in, in what you absolutely. Just about.
1: And the and the thing is, is it's it's always been a generative process. It's just a matter of the fact that we haven't always examined that aspect of it, right? And we make assumptions about um, even with colonial mapping, we make assumptions about what it is necessarily reflective of. But when you look at something. Like colonial mappings, yes, there's, there's the question always, of course, of how those maps are used um, after the fact and for what purpose. But the process of creating the map, for example, was often, was often done using, you know quote unquote, native informants or local informants. And so there is also a, a significant amount of indigenous spatial knowledge that exists within those colonial mappings as well. It's not as if it's void of that. So finding ways to sort of reclaim that knowledge um and, and repurpose it as is as, as a huge part of this as well
0: so powerful and i'm excited to learn more from you over this year um but i i want to ask you 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 started by talking about the or maybe not started but when you talked about the non-linearity of time you talked about the the convergence of mourning um mm-hmm. and your father is a nakba survivor your mother is nakba generation born during and and, and here we are in 2024, and you have family in Gaza. And I want to ask you to talk to us a little bit, if I may, about this moment in time for Palestinians. Like, If you could say something about what this moment in time, what this moment in history means for Palestinians and, and for Palestine.
1: I mean, I think... If I'm being honest, there is um there's a lack of ability to grasp any sense of eloquent wording, perhaps that is not given is not given the time to to write. I think we have privilege as academics, certainly, that we get to kind of write and edit and re-edit our thoughts. Um but in speech one becomes incredibly overwhelmed and I mean I think what we have witnessed over the course of the last five months um in some respects I I hate to say unfortunately we've all known was coming um I've said and many others have said for years that it's going to get worse before it gets better um I I Will certainly concede that I didn't necessarily think it would get quite this bad, um, but we all knew it was going to get worse before it got better. And you know, Israel executing what what should shock anyone is not Israel executing its ongoing logic of elimination, which it has has been doing, which you know it has been conducting since day one um, of the the, the formulation of of Zionism, even as a concept. Um, But the, the blank check that it's getting from the world to do so is is something that requires an entirely separate reaction. Um, So I think to some degree, there is a level of, of shock and warning and despair over the last five months on another level, um, I I think we are all completely unsurprised, and even unsurprised by the reaction of you know mainstream media, of the reaction of unfortunately some um, of our colleagues in whatever field or um, you know uh, beyond academics for that matter, wh- wherever you work, whatever sort of your profession is. Um, but I th- I think for Palestinians in so many ways this is this is a moment of um realizing that we have only ourselves because for as much beauty and appreciation for all of the solidarity that so many around the world have shown and certainly are more representative of um the the morality and the humanity on this planet beyond their governments regionally speaking uh, politically speaking this has been an affirmation to Palestinians um, that there there is no there is no state in the region that can be relied on as an ally. Um, and that if we want our freedom, we have to take it ourselves, um, whatever that is going to look like. so I'll, I'm going leave I'm gonna leave that at that. Thank you for that.
0: um I'm. I feel grateful and, and, and lucky for myself and for our audiences that we are going to get the benefit of getting to talk to you over the coming year. Um, you're going to be a fellow with FMEP for 2024. And what that yeah. means is that we're, we're going to do programming together and conversations, podcasts, webinars. Um, so I want to ask you as my last question, what do you most want FMEP's audiences to know or to think
1: or to be challenged by? right now i think the most important thing right now is do not do not be fatalistic i know it's an incredibly incredibly difficult thing to do in this moment but if we are going to ask the 2 million people in gaza and the you know 3 million in in the west bank and the millions of palestinians around the world to still find a way to look forward, to have continued Samud, you know, steadfastness that, that goes back to this question of indigenous duration. Samood is certainly that version of it in the Palestinian context. Um, then the rest of us, uh, you know, um, cannot, cannot operate in a world of fatalism. Do not make the assumption, do not consider the givens um, that, that media and that your governments are giving you Um, as such, question every bit of it and insist that there is another path forward. Um, And you can do that armed with information and armed with knowledge. Um, And so hopefully uh, with the programming we'll be able to do in the coming year, we can, you know, add to that uh, discourse and add to sort of people's um, thinking and conversations um, and, and do our best to also uh inshallah hopefully in a, in a post cease fire scenario be able to to lift some voices specifically um from from gaza um and from the from the region to to be the ones to tell those stories
0: hopefully that would be incredible Nora, thank you so much for taking the time to join absolutely. me today absolutely thank you
1: for having me and look i look forward look forward to
0: the year <laughs> me too so much And I want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out our website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast, for lots of other rich content related to Palestine and Israel. You can see our earlier programs with Noor. And uh, please also make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of Ethnaps Occupied Thoughts. Take care.